You're listening to the Morphology Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Morphology Podcast. AKA Murph here to share interviews about biking experiences from bicyclists who have pedaled to places all over the U.S. Each week, we will get to know new people and explore new destinations to ride your bike. As you listen to these adventures, you may wonder, why haven't I done that yet? Well, on the show today, we have Lori Lown. Hey, Lori, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Well, at the time of this recording, we are still deep into the coronavirus um I don't even know what I'd say, lifestyle, if, if that's the right word. Um, doing a podcast isn't really affect that because we don't have to be together to record since we're on the phone. Um, but it's still a pretty crazy time to um, be in the world. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, I have so much I want to ask you about. You've got Velo Girls, which is an all-women's cycling organization. You also have Savvy Bike, where you're head coach and bike fit specialist. And I also read up on you, and you've been on some amazing bike adventures. So we've got a, yes. lot, a lot to talk about. But let's start first by um, getting into you. So maybe tell us a little bit about where you live and what the bicycle culture is like there. Sure. Um, I currently live in Silicon Valley in San Jose, California. And I like to believe it's the bike capital of the U.S. <laughs> it's a, a phenomenal place to ride. We've got... A great trifecta that's allowed me to work here, which is we have year-round riding weather. Um, although Californians are known for not riding in the rain because it doesn't rain here very often. Ah. And I have to explain to people that it is safe to ride in the rain and people <laughs> do it in the rest of the world year-round. So even though the <laughs> ground is wet here, you can get on your bike and go. And we have a very affluent community, folks who are intelligent and are willing to recreate really hard as well. And also a community of folks that are focused on really good health. So eating and lifestyle and really just enjoying and being healthy every day. Mm -hmm. So it's a great place to ride a bike. We have world-class riding. Some of the most amazing climbs I've ever done are here in the Bay Area. And I feel very fortunate we can be at the coast or be in the mountains or be at the desert all within the same day. Oh, that's great. And what kind of biking do you do there? Are you a road bike, gravel bike, mountain biker? Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I started as a roadie. I was a very unlikely cyclist. I was not an athlete at all. But, um, you know, I moved to California a little over 20 years ago. And everyone here was healthy and fit and beautiful and rich. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be just like them. <laughs> and I got healthy and fit. <laughs> I don't know about the beautiful and rich part. <laughs> But I started road cycling, um, I, interestingly enough, on a mountain bike, because when I had purchased my first bike as an adult in my 20s, mountain bikes had just been introduced, and that was what everybody was riding, although mm -hmm. most of us were riding them on the road at that time. So I started road cycling. I said I would never mountain bike, and that changed after a couple of years. And I started racing cyclocross, and I've raced gravel all over the U.S. now. So I've done pretty much everything except BMX and downhill mountain bike racing at this point. And do you have a, a certain style of biking that would you would maybe call your favorite? I, it changes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been riding, this is my 21st year of riding a bike. And there are years that I focus on specific aspects of riding. I raced road for 12 years. I've done some Paralympic tandem. I, uh, continue to race mountain bikes and have done lots of ultra endurance stuff, both on road and mountain. Mm -hmm. um, last year did almost only gravel riding. So every ride I did was some type of mixed terrain. And I really embraced that. I love touring and I find, especially in stressful times, I just want to get on my bike and disappear mm -hmm. for weeks. Mm -hmm. So um, it varies. And I think that's what keeps it exciting for me as a hobby. When you think, wow, I've done the same thing for 20 years. The reality is I've done lots of different things. Sure. But they all involved two wheels. 
and I'm exactly the same way. You know, I've spent the last couple months on my fat bike because here in Iowa, you know, sometimes it's snowing, sometimes it's icy, sometimes it's muddy. I mean, so the fat bike just seemed to be the right bike. And for some reason, when I bundle up, it just, it feels <laughs> it feels like, awkward on a road bike. Yeah, like the fat bike just <laughs> seems to make sense. But um, but then I got my touring bike out a couple weeks ago just to like, you know, dust it off and go take a little ride. And now I'm obsessed with that bike. So now I'm like, oh, geez, here we are. I, the fat bike's going to have to go in storage because it's time to <laughs> time to start touring. Um, um, but yeah, I, I believe exactly what you said. It just depends on, you know, my mood or what's going on or um, who you know, I'm hanging out with. Exactly. I was going to say, you know, yeah. what the rest of the groups are doing, uh, which hopefully we get back to a place where we can be biking in groups, but we're not there yet. Right. Yeah. Well, a lot of people always ask when I do podcast interviews to ask my people who I'm interviewing what kind of bikes they have. So do you have a, I'm sure you have more than one bike. I do. I love them all. <laughs> um, what am I riding? Well, right now I'm sitting in my room <laughs> and I moved a trainer here because we are under shelter in place. And so we're not riding mm -hmm. outside as much. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had a bunch of rain. So I've been doing Zwift groups with um, Velo Girls, which is the club that I coach. Mm. And the bike I have on the trainer right now is actually my gravel bike, but I've got road wheels on it. It's a Thesis, mm. um, which is a local San Francisco company. They've been around almost two years now. Last year, I rode it both as a, I have a set of 650B gravel wheels with really wide tires on it, um, which is super fun. And then I also have my 700C road wheels on it. So it was my everything bike sure. last year, pretty much. So even though gravel gearing is not always conducive to group riding on the road because the skips are pretty big, but um, but it's like the perfect anything bike. I did some bike packing on it. I did gravel racing on it. I rode AIDS Life Cycle, which is a seven-day ride from Los, uh, San Francisco to Los Angeles mm. on this bike. So that's the one I'm looking at right now. And then I have a Santa Cruz mountain bike. And I wouldn't call myself a mountain biker like most of my hardcore mountain bike friends, but I do like to mountain bike. Um, I have the Juliana Joplin. What else do I have? I have a specialized Crux, which is my cyclocross race bike. Mm. And I have a Serata Duetti, which is my road bike. And then I have a couple of bikes I hide from my partner because he thinks I have too many bikes. <laughs> so in my bike fit studio, I keep a couple. I have a couple of custom CSIP, um, both my touring bike and my single speed mountain bike are there. So is, he is, he's forgotten say, that I have them. Yeah, I was going to say first of all, he's probably going to listen to this, so the cat's out of the bag. But in the same breath, can you really? have too many bikes like really I, I don't we're know. we're pretty stringent in our household because both of us coach and both of us have multiple bikes mm -hmm. and we have two teenagers and there's only so much real estate and so we don't believe in the n plus one rule that most cyclists do yeah um i even feel guilty about the fact that i have bikes that are seasonal like my cyclocross bike gets a few months of use every year and that's it right so do I really need it? Could I just use my gravel bike to race cyclocross? Yeah, no. But we, like I said, we're very purpose-driven and our bikes need to be ridden. And if they're not ridden, we give each other trouble about right. it, <laughs> which I, is good. Yeah, and I do agree with that, that you have to make sure that you, if they're going to be in your fleet, that you have a purpose and you do ride them. I totally agree with that one on you. Yeah. So uh, getting into, you mentioned um, Savvy Bikes pretty cool. I went online and checked it out. And I wanted to have you share a little bit about what this business is about and what you do there. Sure. Um, and it actually started as part of Velo Girls. Oh, so okay. when I, um, so I'll back up a little if you don't mind. Yeah, when yeah. I first started riding, I was training for the California AIDS ride and I only rode with men and I didn't know any women who rode. And uh, long story short, I got laid off from my job in 2001 um, from Charles Schwab, along with 9,000 of my closest co-workers. And I had been riding a bike for a couple of years, and I fell in love with it. It was the first thing that I ever did athletically that I was good at. And I had become a ride leader. I was captain of the cycling team at Schwab. 
And when I got laid off, I half jokingly thought, how can I get paid to ride my bike? But the reality was I was not an athlete as a child and really didn't do anything in sport until my late 20s. And so when I picked up a bike and I succeeded at it, it really improved my life. It improved my self-esteem. It made me feel good about myself. And that's pretty much the founding tenet of what I do, which is if you can succeed at something, then you'll be a better person. Mm-hmm. You'll be a better spouse or a better coworker or a boss or a parent. And because success is what improves us mm-hmm. as people. And so I wanted to share that. So even though, yes, I wanted to get paid to ride my bike, <laughs> I more than that wanted to help people love riding a bike. And what I had found when I started was there wasn't really any education. If you were a racer, you could take a racing clinic, but there was no other um, education as far as how to learn how to ride a bike. And it was at a time that was before social media. So there was no Facebook, there was no meetup or um, other ways that were easy to find groups of people who had similar interests. Mm -hmm. And the traditional model of the cycling club was very race oriented and very male oriented. And so I would go out and ride with one of the local clubs that my I had a coach and he coached that group and I would be the only woman. And it was very frustrating to me. And I knew that there were women out there. I would see them on the road, usually with a group of guys hanging on right. to do your life, <laughs> right. <laughs> working really hard, trying to stay with the group. I know that well. Yeah. And so I decided, and even my own coach, he was like, well, who's going to race for you? Who's going to ride with you? You're not a former pro. You're, you know, you're a nobody. You just started riding a bike a couple of years ago, but I was passionate about it. And I have a background in teaching as well. And so I decided, you know, I couldn't get a job. (laughs) I went back to school, started studying to be a trainer. So I studied exercise physiology and adaptive fitness, which is fitness for folks with disabilities. But what I really loved was the bike. And I didn't want to count reps in a gym. I really wanted Mm -hmm. to spend time outside and help people understand riding a bike. And that was the thing for me as an adult. I rode as a kid and as do most people. Right. But we never learned to ride as children. When we ride a bike as a kid, we're very intuitive. We have a really good sense of proprioception. So where is our body in space? How do we interact with the bike? How does the bike interact with the terrain? And it's very natural. We don't overthink it. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, we have a lot of baggage. We have jobs to go to on Monday and a sense of responsibility to our family. And we have fear. We don't understand how the bike works. And so we do things wrong that cause us to crash. And then it's not a fun experience. Mm. Or we wonder why, you know, we go out and everybody else seems to enjoy it. They like going downhill and you're terrified of going downhill, or it seems easy for some people to climb a hill and it's really hard for you to climb a hill. And so that becomes a frustrating experience. And then once I had started working in the bike industry, I worked at a shop and I noticed the same thing. Women would come in and they're like, oh yeah, my boyfriend bought me this bike a year ago. I've never ridden it because I'm afraid or I don't know how. And no one was teaching. So I decided to start this women's organization and was shocked at the amount of interest. I had, you know, posted on Craigslist and built a website myself and put some flyers in bike shops. And we had our first ride. And I don't remember, but it was 50 or 60 women showed up. Oh, my God. And I was. Yeah. Wow. And I was just shocked. And so we grew. We started very small. We did two rides a month and grew from there. And eventually Within that first year, I'd said, oh, no, we'll never race. There are other race teams. And all of a sudden, we had a race team. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'd said, oh, we'll never mountain bike. There was an organization called Wombats in the Bay Area run by Jackie Fallon, who is probably one of the more famous um, historical figures in the mountain bike world. And I was like, oh, I don't want to compete with her. But she wasn't doing much at that point. So then all of a sudden, we were mountain biking. And then we were doing some co-ed stuff and singles rides. And it kind of morphed from there. And eventually, we went on to have a pro team and racing in every discipline and had national champions. And it was pretty cool. Wow. And so that organization has morphed a lot over the years. I finally let go of the racing piece. I had raced myself for 12 years, and um, I don't know how much you know about women's road racing, but there isn't any age group racing. Their fields are not 
necessarily large. Um, so they group lots of folks of different fitness levels and different ages oh, and different risk <laughs> risk takers versus more risk averse racers and, um, and running a development team, I found I was always recruiting and training and developing and then spitting people out to other race teams. So I finally took a break from that, but we continue on and we have progressive series and beginner rides. And to my knowledge, we're the only group still doing a beginner ride every week of the year um, for women, which is great. It's a women need that first nudge, that welcoming community to get them out there. Yeah, so that's Velo Girls. And then as part of Velo Girls, I really wanted to coach and I wanted to teach people. And no one had a curriculum. So we developed a curriculum for our racing team. And I was able, they were really just skills. How do I ride my bike, basically, right? How do I work with it, the physics of it versus um, not knowing how to ride my bike and working against it. And And when you say learning how to ride my bike, is it... Uh, as complex as, uh, you know, when you feel this, you need to shift gears or is it simply how to pedal to get the most power out of it? Like, or like what's high level? Very little of it is about, yeah. So we, so we teach everything Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, right? So how to start and stop and clip in and clip out and emergency stops and, um, counter steering, you name it. We teach fundamentals, Ah, right? So it's kind of like language. It's, it's, it would be akin to sending someone to their senior year in high school without going to any other classes oh, for 18 I see. years. Sure, sure. Right? So we're teaching the fundamentals, the alphabet of riding a bike, the physics. Because, again, people don't know simple things like, why do I have three positions on the handlebar? What is the purpose of the handlebar? The fact that I don't steer the bike with the handlebar. It's there for balance. It's there to change my weight distribution. It has nothing to do with steering, really, until you get to high speed. Mm-hmm. Um, so helping folks understand that, helping folks understand when to brake and how to brake, because braking is one of the things that causes us to crash. So just like steering incorrectly, that's the other thing that causes us to crash. And surprisingly, people don't know that. And they're embarrassed that they don't know that. Everyone knows how to ride a bike, right? But we don't. And that's the other thing that's really stressful. And so originally we started out teaching women. We were doing some two-day women's clinics. And then enough of the women who took our clinics said, you know, my husband thinks he knows, but he doesn't. Could you teach a men's clinic? So we started teaching men's clinics and women's clinics. And eventually, just economy of scale, we decided to start doing things together. Mm -hmm. Um, There definitely is a gender difference in learning. Um, which is interesting. My MBA is actually in gender relations. So I spent a lot of time studying how the brain is different and how we um, behave differently, how we react to learning, how we learn differently, how we approach community differently. Um, And it is pretty significant, but we've found that we can successfully teach folks together, which is good. So yeah, about 10 years ago, I decided, I think it was 2006, or 2008, I was a keynote speaker with um, USA Cycling, held their first women's coaching conference. And I remember sitting in one of the lectures after speaking and really revising what I was doing. We were teaching these two-day clinics, and I was like, how do I break it down and teach, you know, shorter bursts of this? And so we came up with these modules, these four-hour modules to cover. We have a fundamentals module that's 101 and a climbing and descending module, a a group riding clinic, a cyclocross clinic, a mountain bike clinic. So these shorter clinics that would be more focused on one specific area. And that's when we decided, yeah, let's see some, some co-ed stuff and see if that works. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Savvy Bike also evolved. The name Velo Girls, Velo, which is the masculine form of bicycle in French, is not a name that everyone knows. And so when I was trying to rebrand the coaching part of Velo Girls, I wanted something that was not gender specific Mm -hmm. and was not regional and not tied into my name in any way. I wanted something that would be, I could take it with me if I were to leave Silicon Valley, it would be portable. And I wanted something that explicitly said bike Mm -hmm. because Velo, unless you are seeking it out, you don't know that Velo is bicycle. 
So for many folks who are just getting into the sport, that was important. And I also didn't want anything that was gender specific because I thought, you know, at that point, about 60% of my bike fit clients were men and about 40% of our clinic participants were men. Mm. And, but men were not seeking out bike services and coaching through Velo Girls. So I decided it would be time for a, a new image and a new brand. So Velo Girls continues as a club and we have group rides and training programs. But all of the skills clinics and all of the one-on-one and all of the bike fit services, all of that is now part of Savvy Bike, which has been a great segue for us. Mm-hmm. So it's allowed me to um, bring in some additional leadership and develop girls and get ready to maybe retire from that at some point and um, to build the coaching business on its own. Mm-hmm. And when you look at uh, Savvy Bike, Um, you said that you have clinics and such. So are you actually doing classroom learning and then like out on your bicycles learning? We are, except Ah. our classroom is outdoors. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) So all of our clinics begin with about an hour of lecture. So if we're doing a four hour skills clinic, there's everyone receives a really nice pre-clinic 20 page handout of materials that I've put together over the years and things that I've written. Mm -hmm. And so all of that lecture type learning and then there is an actual lecture and then we're on the bike for skills so everything is pretty much outside with the exception of when i teach at corporations i will sometimes sit in a conference room and give a lecture sure but yeah oh that's amazing i wish that that service was available where i am (laughs) well maybe it's time for a career change there you go (laughs) are you going to start franchising out (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because ever since I started Velo Girls, Velo Girls was probably one of the first women's clubs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of women's teams that already existed, but there were no clubs. Ever since I started, people are like, oh, you should franchise this to San Diego, to Chicago, to whatever. And I never really could see um, where the benefit of that was mm-hmm. for me or for anyone else. I Instead, I advised a lot of people in how to start their own thing. Because oh. I think there are so many regional differences. There mm-hmm. are, I mean, you can take a program. Little Bellas is a good example, right? They took a curriculum for young girls, mountain bike based, self-esteem building curriculum, and they've been able to adapt that all over. But I think a lot of what we did with Velo Girls in particular was very individual. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see any real franchise savings. It was like, okay, I can advise you. Mm. But one website, does that help us? Does that, you know, what are the economies at scale there that would make a franchise model make sense? Sure. But with skills instruction, it's been interesting because there are two things that currently exist. One is many of the bike coalitions. So the organizations that are really lobbying for us and there are advocacy organizations, but also our education organizations are teaching street skills. Or they're teaching programs like Safe Routes to School. So really teaching people how to coexist with other road users Mm -hmm. and to drive their bike, basically. And then there are organizations that are race-oriented. So we have a program here um, that I've been involved with called the Early Bird Racing Program, which teaches race-specific skills. But nobody's teaching riding, individual riding skills. How do I not fall off my own bike? (laughs) Right? Right, right. So... So that's what we do. And I don't know that many people are doing that throughout the country. So we've been pretty successful here. It's been awesome. So we teach our own clinic. And I also teach for a lot of corporations. So I've taught at Facebook, at LinkedIn, at SAP, at KLA 10 Core. Lots of these large corporations have bike initiatives. And so I teach classes for them, for their employees. And I also teach for other clubs, which is great. And I... I'm just thinking, um, you know, relating this back to uh, my experience, and I took a course, and I'm a league certified instructor with League of American Bicyclists. And, you know, the assumption when you're going through that course is that people do know how to ride a bike. And it was interesting, some of the people in my class, you know, some of them worked for the city. Uh, Actually, I took this class in Chicago. So it was really a diverse group of people. And there was a group of women that were in the class 
to learn how to become certified instructors so that they could teach people coming into the country that didn't know English. And it was so interesting when they would talk about meeting up with these people, how, you know, they didn't even know how to ride a bike, much less be able to communicate while riding their bike. And so I, I think about the stuff we learned in that class versus what you have out there and what you have been teaching. It's a world different and pretty cool that you, you have what you have. A quick interruption to tell you this week's podcast is sponsored by Lizard Lips Lip Balm. These great lip balms contain natural ingredients, come in a variety of flavors, and you can choose certified organic or balms with sun protection. Check it out at lizardlips.net. Now back to the show. I teach the LAB classes as well. And it's interesting because the Bay Area is quite large and we have different bike coalitions throughout. So Mm -hmm. San Francisco has their own bike coalition and the East Bay of, of the San Francisco Bay actually has probably the most robust program of street skills type LAB classes. Mm-hmm. Um, Silicon Valley has very little. It's interesting. They've put their money into a bunch of different initiatives, but not into teaching street skills. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay because when I get somebody who's like, they really want to learn about how to commute or they, and we also teach a commuting class, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they really want to learn how to coexist on the road. I'll send them to the East Bay because that's their, that's what they do. They do it really well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these classes are free. We also have a very large Hispanic Latina community here. And so having instructors who are bilingual and are able to teach the Spanish language class are great, yeah. which I'm not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you have, you have the content and then you just have instructors that exactly get the right well and it's interesting because i have taught spanish classes and i've had translators i've also had classes for the deaf where i've had american sign language translators Mm. so you learn to be creative yeah interesting so you've got uh, savvy bikes and then you've got velo girls i read online that you've also done quite a bit of um, bike adventuring or touring outside of the (laughs) United States. And I was super intrigued by it. So I was wondering if you could, you know, give us a a few highlights. A quick interruption to tell you this week's sponsor is Thirsty Pigs, a full service mobile event company offering beer, wine, spirits, plus catering for any indoor or outdoor event. Check out more at thirstypigs.com. Now back to the show. Sure. And it's interesting. I love to tour. I, you know, I, I look at myself as Peter Pan in many ways. I'm the kid who didn't grow up. And I, as a kid, would go away on my bike and just disappear for an entire day. And I think the same desire is there as an adult. I've had this need to ride cross country, which I haven't done yet. So mm. every year I, I go away and I pick away at five states or eight states or three states or whatever, depending on where I go. And just ride. And I think there's something really, really empowering about carrying your own gear, fending for yourself in the wild, whether you're camping or hoteling. I mean, that's not really wild, but and getting yourself from point A to point B. And I think it's very interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be on a bike, but I do a lot of my touring alone and folks always question whether I feel safe and Don't I get lonely and all of those things. And yeah, you get all of, you know, I've had many nights when I've madly texted someone because I'm sure I'm going to die. Someone's (laughs) going to kill me or a bear is going to eat me or whatever. Right, right. And I've been through tornadoes. I've been through thunderstorms. I've been through all kinds of exciting natural events. But I think it's really important for us to spend time alone. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important as humans to spend time alone in challenging conditions. And I think touring is challenging. Mm -hmm. We see the pretty pictures. We see Instagram where it all looks awesome. I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, been on a a route that was supposed to be 100 miles. And at 90 miles, you get to a detour that means you're doing 30 more. (laughs) Because the road, the bridge is washed out. And Google Maps didn't tell you that. And you just want to cry because you're almost out of daylight and you're hungry and, you know, and then the next day, that was the best day ever right. on the bike. But 
Yeah, I started touring, you know, obviously, I, I mentioned I did the California AIDS ride. Mm-hmm. And then I did a number of different AIDS rides in different places. So I rode in Alaska, I did Boston to New York, I um, did the Texas ride, I did a bunch of stuff that was interesting and different. And then I did a three week tour of New Zealand. And it was um, through a company called Vermont Bicycle Tours. And so it was a pretty high end, you know, who can afford to go away for, it actually it was four weeks because then we spent a week in Australia. Oh, wow. And it was just amazing to me to see how we change. I'd never taken an extended vacation before. And at that point, once you get past the first week and you're now in the rhythm of just being on vacation, and this was pre-cell phones, this was pre internet really where you were not connected for a month you just went away and did what you were going to do and then I decided okay I want to do this on my own and so I built up a touring bike and flew back to New York where I had grown up and got off the plane and (laughs) my first tour ever and they lost my bike oh and I had planned my tour to start that first day, matter of fact. So I had to wait and everything was delayed and everything had to change. So I learned many lessons there. But yeah, I jumped in. My first solo tour was three weeks on the East Coast, totally self-supported. And financially, I didn't have a lot of money. So there were no hotels on that tour. It was all about camping and staying with friends occasionally, but mostly camping and being alone and meeting other people on the road. And it was super cool. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, not having way back then, uh, internet or phone. And for some people, that's terrifying to not have that feeling of connection. But right. I, I think it's because we're connected every day now in any, right. any way we want to be when you like, go on a multi day or a week, or like you said, for several weeks, it is so liberating. <laughs> it is. It is. And uh, this past fall, I did a mountain bike tour, and it was a little different for me because it was with a small group. Um, It was the San Juan Huts, which the tour we did was from Durango, Colorado, to Moab, Utah. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating. It was a, a group of mostly older men and a high school girlfriend of mine. And they needed a last minute fill in person. She's like, you want to go? And I'm like, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I know. And it was different because the hot tours. So you have a set route each day and you can add on some bonus riding. But it was quite hard. You start at 9000 feet and go up to about 13000. And each day was pretty significant. For the most part, the first several days, of course, when the altitude is the worst mm. and you're going up, 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 you don't start going down until the end of the week. But there was no cell phone. There was no electricity. There was no running water for a week. And you're with a bunch of strangers, but mm. you're in a stocked hut. So each night you had a hut to go to mm-hmm. and it was stocked with food and heat in the higher elevations and you could cook and have whatever you need. And it had bunks so you didn't have to carry too much stuff. So that was good. We actually have uh, that very trip scheduled in September. Uh, I guess we're doing Telluride to Moab using the San Juan hut system. So uh, I may be bugging you a little bit as we get closer to, you know, get some more feedback from you. But I'm super, super excited about it. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. It was um, it was funny because the first four days, I was like, ah, this is the best thing ever. And I'm going to bring back a group of women, people I like, because I was with all these crunchy old men, Um, (laughs) which was fine. It was just very different. Right. And I'm used to being a leader. And I'm also used to being alone. And so, you know, transitioning into a group of people I don't know, and they all know each other. And but then day five on the Durango to Moab route, you go into what's called Paradox Valley. And Paradox Valley, the river actually runs backwards from the way it should run, I guess. Mm. Um, And I don't know geology enough to understand the intricacies of that. But there's this trail called the Ketchum-Up Trail, and it's less than a mile. And it used to be somewhat rideable. There were some sections that it wasn't rideable because it's a big, huge drop in elevation. Well, in March of last year, there was an earthquake. And now the trail is like 99% not rideable. Mm. And not only is it unrideable, but it's huge exposure. And it's so narrow that you can't even walk with your own bike. You have to pass your bike forward. So we had this 
this line of passing bikes, passing bikes, passing bikes. And one of the gentlemen on the tour was deathly afraid of heights. And so we're holding on to him and trying to calm him down going down this. It took us two hours to go three quarters of a mile down this thing. No It was crazy. Yeah, because you got your loaded bike. And you're walking and you can barely walk. And it was just, and th- so that was day five. And I was like, yeah, forget this. Because yeah. there's no <laughs> other option on day five. So I think the Telluride option, my understanding is it's a bit easier of a route. And I think it's also a bit more scenic of a route. Uh, Our okay. route was mostly fire roads and it was, it was not exciting mountain biking. But to me, it was exciting just to be in the woods right. and to be, in the high desert and some of the most beautiful photos I've ever taken were on that trip. It was like, wow, this looks great. Uh, how about, uh, have you done, I think you mentioned that you've done some races, any epic uh, races worth mentioning? Yeah, I did. It's interesting because we've been doing gravel stuff for many years and gravel's suddenly taken off. And so last year I decided I was just going to, and it didn't, I didn't start the year that way, but it kind of turned into this, which was, I found myself being invited to race some gravel races in different places. And so I did a cool race in North Carolina, which was completely flat. So different. And that's the interesting thing I think about gravel is in different parts of the country, gravel is very different. Mm -hmm. So here in Northern California, most of our gravel races are actually very mixed terrain. They might be 50-50 or 60% pavement, 40% gravel. But the gravel here is very technical. So it's super hilly stuff and both up and down. And yeah, so it's a game changer Mm -hmm. in the race. On the East Coast, I did this race called the Croton Buck 50, which was right on the ocean. They had a 50-mile option, a 100-mile option, and 150. And I chose the 100 because it was in the beginning of March. I was like, yeah, 100 miles of gravel. That'll be good for where I am fitness-wise. And... And in 100 miles, it only had 500 feet of climbing. Oh, wow. Which is the flattest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Because Northern California, I can't leave my driveway without being on a hill here. <laughs> and and interestingly enough, I ended up on the podium in that race. Hey, that's cool. I know. And my only other podium of the season was a race here in California called the Old Growth Classic. And it was only 50 miles, but it was 9,000 feet of climbing. I'll let that sink in for a minute. I 50 was, miles. I know. I was just literally <laughs> trying to figure 9, out. 9,000 feet of climbing. And um, and I also ended up on the podium, which was interesting, because I'm really good at going and not stopping. Mm-hmm. Everybody else stops. I just don't stop. I just go. But probably the most interesting thing I did last year was the um, Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder. They put together in Oregon, they had three different gravel races. They had a one day, which I did not do. And that was in the gorge, the Royal Gorge. And then they did a three day race that I did. It was a time trial in two races. I won't call them road races because they were all gravel. And then I, in June, they did a five day race. And Mm -hmm. so they carried your gear with you and you camped and it was great fun. It was super hard, but super fun. And, you know, it was their first year for these events, so they definitely were working out some um, bugs, Mm -hmm. things like, oh, hot water. (laughs) Just the basics. But by the end, it was all worked out really well. And um, Chad Sperry put these on, and he's been putting on races, mostly road races, um, at a very high level, nationals, all kinds of UCI stuff. And, And he was part of the... Cascade Classic, which was a classic road race in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So they were really cool events. And that was neat. It was, I don't know how many racers, maybe three or 400. So it was a moving village every night. They, you know, you would get on your bike and you would start the race. And every night you would camp together and they carried your gear for you. And that was hard, very hard, but very fun. That so sounds those fun. were some of the cool I was just going to ask if you all ended up at the same spot. So they must be keeping track of your time. And then obviously the faster athletes get more time to rest. Yes. Okay. Obviously. Or to drink beer. And, yeah. you know, that's what seems to be. Okay. It's funny because I don't drink, but oh. um, I don't mind other people drinking. Yeah. So I figured that was my one advantage. Everybody got back early and was drinking beer and I wasn't drinking. <laughs> so I was doing better the next day. But, and I, and I'm assuming- but that's one of the interesting things I think about gravel events is they 
tend to accommodate a wider range of people. So mm-hmm. road racing, you know, you're in the pack or you're not in the pack. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in the pack, your race is basically over. But grapple racing, it's a little more like mountain bike where they have age groups, they have categories, they you're out there doing your own thing in your smaller groups. Or triathlon, where it's you against the clock, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's a pointy end in all these races. There are the elite racers that come. And that seems to be the trend right now is all of these race promoters invite celebrity racers to come as a draw to other folks. So yeah, you've got the, the folks that are in it to win it. And then you have the the laughing bunch in the back, right? <laughs> so the other people that are there to challenge themselves and to... Um, have a great experience and maybe feel the same way that the pro racers are, right? So they feel like they're getting that pro experience. And I think that's one of the appeals. It doesn't have all the same rules as a USAC race. It doesn't have all the risks of a USAC race. Right, and right. People go and have fun and you get cookies and drink beer and that kind of thing. So it's definitely, and USAC obviously has picked up on that because now they're starting to sanction some gravel events. Since road is having its challenges these days. Right. Well, and we are recording this in early April, and a lot of events are being canceled, you know, just due to what's happening in the world right now. But do you Mm -hmm. have anything on your calendar for 2020? I did. I had lots of things. Yes, I know. (laughs) It was interesting. So we talked earlier about, you know, keeping things interesting. And that's how I can have this same hobby for 20 years. So this past year, I got a little burnt out. I did all these races all over the country. I traveled too much and I was tired. And I came back by September. I was really kind of done. I didn't want to ride my bike anymore. And I really struggled. I kept looking at my bike and thinking, what do I want to do today? Mm. I don't want to get on my bike. I've been involved with this organization called Mermaid. They put on women's events, mostly running, but they do one triathlon duathlon each year. And so I've been doing their duathlon for many, many years. And I'm an ambassador for them. And I thought, what would happen if I took a year and I ran instead of riding my bike? Now, I'm still riding my bike. Yeah. But I'm not on it six days a week the way I was. So I started running in October and I was like, okay, I'm going to run and I'm going to lift because everything I'm reading about how do I maintain strength as a 54 year old woman really has to do with lift heavy things, (laughs) do high intensity exercise. And so I was like, okay, running for me, because I'm not very efficient, is high intensity by definition. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would get on the bike when I would get on the bike, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't going to train anymore on the bike. So I started running. I bought a training plan, which was awesome. And I ran my first half marathon in February. And now I've had two more canceled half marathons. Mm -hmm. But I've still got, I've got a couple of marathons that I'm registered for in the fall. So we'll see what happens. Running is not seamless for me. I had hip surgery two and a half years ago, and my other hip probably should have surgery. So every once in a while, I go through a period where my body just says, yeah, that was awesome, but don't do it again for a while. (laughs) So, and I just went through that. I did my first half, started having some weird body aches, which actually we think I've already had COVID. So we'll find out if we ever get to do antibody testing. Uh, And And I think that's what was causing all the body aches. So yesterday I was able to go out and I just knocked out a 5K and felt pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, let's just hold here for a little while and see what's happening mm-hmm. and ramp the mileage back up. But there's not a lot of pressure right now because all of the events have been canceled, yeah. which is just, it's heartbreaking. And I feel for, I'm a former race director. I, I put on a criterium for eight years and I know the economics of putting on a bike race or a running race or a triathlon or any kind of event it's not easy and most of these folks are not in it for the money they're in it for the love of the sport Mm -hmm. most of the expense in these sports in these events is six to 12 months in advance so when an event is canceled that money's already gone nobody's going to be able to refund you unless they had really good a long history and good financial planners so they had a cushion Right. Most of these events are running on next year's income, basically. So it's been very challenging. And it's been very interesting to me watching the response of all these various promoters. Some of them are furring. Some of them are trying to find new dates. Some of them are saying, hey, you made a donation. And so right now I'm just I'm trying to move every day since we are in shelter in place. This mm-hmm. is our fourth week. 
of being stuck at home. (laughs) And we have some restrictions on exercise here in California, but it was definitely part of the order that we should be out. So I've embraced walking for one thing, Mm -hmm. because I was having some issues running. I was like, well, we'll just walk and see if I can do that. So I've been walking miles and miles and miles every day. Mm And riding when I can, whether it's outside. We've had a lot of raining weather lately, which is weird. Mm -hmm. Remember, we don't ride in the rain in California. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, riding a couple days a week and walking every day. And it's actually become a nice new habit. My partner and I go out and we walk before breakfast and then we come home and he makes me breakfast and I'm in heaven. So, yeah, (laughs) for me, I do a lot of bike riding uh, just for fun. Like, like you said, I'm not training for a specific event or I'm not trying to race. I literally love touring where I may max out at 12, 13 miles an hour and I don't care. I'm just there for fun and to check out new trails and see what's outside and just, you know, good for my mind and my body. And, I can see the exact same thing in walking as well, is that, you know, you're not trying to beat the clock. You're just out there uh, trying to uh, make sense of all this. Right. Well, and it's interesting. When when I started riding a bike, I realized, wow, when you're in a car, you don't see or hear or smell the same thing that you do on a bike. Right. So when you slow down to bike pace, you start to see new things. When I started to run and I was running some of the roads that I ride, and some of the trails that I ride, I was like, oh, I never noticed that before because now you've slowed you're down slow. yes, great, to yeah. running pace. And now that I'm walking, a matter of fact, this morning we we walked a slightly different route and it's a route that I've run and I've ridden. And I was like, I never noticed that <laughs> that yeah, thing. It yeah. was a big piece of property that was empty. I was like, wow. Or we saw a creek today that I'd never noticed. Mm-hmm. I was like, when was there a creek there? And it's like, oh, okay. But the walking thing's been good for us. And, you know, as at, at 54, I think, okay, at some point, I'm going to have to slow down all this running and riding stuff. Do mm-hmm. I have another 10 years? Maybe. Do I have 20 years? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we change. And I've watched lots of athletes I know who I've known for a long time who went from racing bikes to riding bikes to taking walks to mm-hmm. hiking to whatever. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. And to move your body in a different way is really good. Riding a bike for 20 years is not good for your body. Right. Your body becomes really, really good at doing one thing, riding right. a bike, but not good at other things. And so mixing it up, I think, is really important. I completely agree. And I was just going to ask you, maybe that's already your advice, but I was going to ask you if you had any advice for people during this kind of weird time, you know, whether it's recreational riding or just getting outside or Mm -hmm. even going further than that? Yeah. Well, and I think there's, there's several different kinds of people right now. First of all, I should say we should acknowledge that we're in a stressful situation Mm -hmm. and we respond to stress very differently. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I keep seeing all these memes about, you know, the COVID-15. So people are either In my opinion, from when I look at my Facebook and my Instagram feeds, people are either exercising like crazy and they're going to come out of the super fit or they're eating like crazy and comfort baking and which is easy to do. True. Right. And the same is true. We know there are people who are stress eaters and stress exercisers. And, you know, there is so much free offering right now in the fitness world online. Uh, many, many, many different fitness companies have opened up their libraries of workouts Mm -hmm. or there are trainers who are doing free workouts or inexpensive workouts. Our CrossFit gym is offering, they gave us equipment if we wanted. They are doing live workouts every day and recorded workouts. And so there's lots of opportunity to do structured stuff. For me, I'm finding I I don't want to do the class. I want to get up every hour and do 15 minutes or 10 minutes of something. Mm -hmm. So drop and squat, I call it, right? So I I walk somewhere and now I'm going to do some, you know, tricep work on the bench or I'm going to walk up and down the stairs a bit or do my squats or try to do some Mm chin-ups, try to do some (laughs) chin-ups. I'm really good at hanging from the bar and doing little tiny kips. But, you know, so, so just moving our body and... But being okay with, I don't have to check things off my list because that's stressing a lot of people out. They're Mm -hmm. like, I have all this free time and I should be doing things. I should be productive. And I'm like, maybe 
just being with yourself is being productive right now. Oh, well said. Yes. Or maybe set some goals if you're one of those people that needs those goals and say, hey, I'm going to do 10,000 steps today or I'm going to do a 15 minute yoga workout or whatever it is that makes you feel better. Um, you know, if you're in Northern California, I've been part of this community for 20 years, part of the cycling community, and I'm here as a resource. I've been doing mm-hmm. pre-Zoom consults because I'm a bike fitter. I can't work. I can't. Um, bike shops are considered essential right now right. Um, because of transportation. So purchasing bikes, purchasing stuff for bikes and getting repair for bikes is all essential. Um, bike fitting is not mm. But there are people who want to ride their bikes that need help. So I've been doing um, a lot of Zoom consults, both individually with clients or people who've been on my calendar. Unfortunately, we shut down so quickly. I had to move 60 bike fit clients off my calendar. I know, busiest time of year, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And But these are people who, you know, oftentimes someone doesn't book a bike fit until they're already injured. They're having discomfort. Mm -hmm. They've got the new bike and it's not dialed in. So I've been helping people on video. Um, I've been doing some Zoom consults for groups, just offering, hey, let's get together for an hour and I'm I'm here to answer your questions. Mm, Nice. So what I would say is if you're, especially in Northern California, look me up if you don't know me already uh, through Velo Girls or Savvy Bike. I'm here and I just want to see people getting rad on their bikes and improving their lives and being happy. Yeah. And it even in these crazy times, we are still encouraged to, you know, keep moving and exercise. And even if it's a little bit outside or in your basement, like mm-hmm. you got to do it. Absolutely. And baking bread is fine, too. <laughs> yes. I know. Well, we have two teenage girls. <laughs> and they're baking every day. And I'm like, really? And so... Their dad is going to the grocery store once a week and, you know, we have this family grocery list of things that we want and they're going through flour and sugar. (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting. I was reading last night about, you know, we, we keep hearing about all the hoarders, the toilet paper hoarders and the flour hoarders. And the, the reality is it's a supply chain issue. So, you know, we, when everybody's at the office, they're using their toilet paper at the office. Yeah. And so industrial toilet paper sales are down, but domestic toilet paper sales are up and we're running out. Yeah. Um, And the same thing with flour. You can't find a five pound bag of flour anywhere. You can find a 50 pound bag of flour for commercial use. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Everybody's locked in and doing all the things and cleaning their homes and getting stuff ready for Goodwill and. Yeah, my house has never looked this good. It's like, okay. <laughs> and, and then you cannot have any guests over to actually show it I know. off. <laughs> I know. Who cares? Uh, well, Lori, I so appreciate that you were on the podcast today. It was fun getting to know you and learn about Savvy yeah. Bike and Velo Girls. And hopefully uh, you have continued success with, um, well, running or walking or biking. Yes. Awesome. Maybe just living and moving my body, right? There you go. Living and moving. That's good, too. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. Yeah. It was an honor to be part of your podcast community. And I can't wait to chat with you some more and see what you're up to. Sounds good. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week. A big thanks to Lori Lown for taking the time to talk. It was so nice to get to know her and learn more about both Savvy Bike and Velo Girls along with all of her great cycling experiences. You can find links and more info in the show notes. And of course, email me your topics or names of cyclists you find interesting at morphologypodcast at gmail.com. And check out morphologypodcast.com to find all kinds of great info. I'll leave you with this quote from the unwritten book of morphology. This quote comes from Lori Lown. Success is what improves us as people. Think about it.